Welcome to the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. My name's Jim Gallagher Jr. I'll be your host today and appreciate you listening. Don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your uh, podcast and uh, this should be a good one. We appreciate uh, everybody listening over the last few years, and uh, we've had some pretty good guests, and uh, it's been fun doing these, and uh, uh, I think today's going to be a fun one. We have Erica Brennan, the South Florida women's golf coach, with us, uh, and she's quite the character on Instagram with her dance moves, whether it's in front of the entire athletic department or even at a USF football game on the Jumbotron. Uh, It's quite the show, and of course, she makes college golf experience for her players, so much fun. And uh, she was hired in 2017 in December in what she uh, describes as her dream job, calls the Uprising, her moniker for USF Drive, to become not only uh, an American Athletic Conference Championship contender, but a national one as well. Uh, she's really done a great job there since she took over one of the most improved teams uh, in college women's golf. So I uh, can't wait to, to hear from uh, uh, Erica, and let's get to know her just a little bit better. Well, I uh, have a special guest that I can't wait uh, for y'all to get to know a little bit better. That's the South Florida women's golf coach, Erica Brennan. So, Coach, let's just get started. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Appreciate you having me on. You grew up uh, in Lake Wells, Florida, not too far from there. There's a beautiful golf course there, Mountain Lake. Uh, Tell us about growing up and maybe kind of who got you started in golf and some of your early influences. Yeah, I love sharing this story. So, I grew up as a firehouse kid and I wanted to be at the firehouse as often as I could with my dad and kind of the guys at C-Shift. So they, on their day off, when they would get off at 6.15 in the morning, they would go and play at a local course, nine-hole course called Lily Lake down in South Lake Wales. And I just wanted to be around those guys. And so my dad would let me tag along and I started chipping and putting, you know, with those guys out there and that's actually kind of how it was born and how I discovered that I loved the game of golf. And it was really all credit to, to kind of those firehouse guys. What'd you learn from those guys early on? Cause that could be intimidating for a young girl trying to get used to playing. I know you were not intimidated being around them cause you were around them, but on the golf course. So the cool thing about that culture, it's shaped so much, Jim, like my leadership style and philosophy has come from the firehouse, but I think what I love about those guys is they never treated me as less than Mm. they, they said, come on board, but if you're going to be out here and you're going to be with us, like you're a part of us. And so the way that they included me in that, you know, when really they didn't have to, right. This is a five, six year old girl tagging along. And so it was fun. Um, And certainly, you know, the jokes were a plenty and they weren't afraid to come at me. I wasn't afraid to fire shots across the bow at them and, and it was just fun because, like, I felt like I belonged. And those guys really did do a good job of, of making me feel like that. What a high-intensity job. And then you go play golf and try to relax. What was it like? What did you learn from your dad growing up? Because I'm sure, like you said, you passed those leadership uh, qualities and skills to you. What was it like, you know, that intense job and then trying to go play golf and, and just kind of balance the normalcy of life with such a tough job? You know, it's interesting because I feel like when you're young, you don't see as much, you know, you kind of get shielded from some of that hurt and, and get insulated from that. And my dad tried to do that with me as often as possible. And it really wasn't until I got older and really took an active interest in wanting to learn more about first responder life um, that he started to kind of lift that veil and show me a little bit more. And those 
that culture, it's it's such a brotherhood, and, and I don't mean that male-female. You know, I mean mm-hmm. literally the camaraderie. It's such a brotherhood in the way that they have each other's backs and support each other. And it's a place where you can come as you are, and, and it's celebrated. It's actually one of the most inclusive environments I think I've ever been around. And, and their differences are celebrated, but the way they rally and, and you just know that they have your back and you have their back um, when you go into a firefight. I mean, I just relished the opportunity to, to try to learn everything that I could for what that brotherhood means. And, and it, man, it's shaped everything as I got older. I mean, I remember really fondly, my dad came and woke me up at like three o'clock in the morning. I was, I think I was in high school and he's like, let's go to Walmart and get a yo-yo. And I remember thinking, like, <laughs> this is crazy. You know, like, like, why did you just wake me up to go get a yo-yo? So we went to Walmart. We got yo-yos. We're, you know, we're in the kitchen, in the kitchen at, you know, 3.30 in the morning. And he's teaching me how to walk the dog and how to make it spin at the bottom and, you know, all these different tricks. And, you know, at the time I was like, this is so cool. You know, like my dad got this wild hair and, and he wanted to yo-yo and, like, how cool is this? And, you know, it wasn't late until later that I started to connect the dots that that, that really was born out of a place of, you know, sometimes you just want quality time and, mm-hmm. and tomorrow is never given. And so as I've gotten older, I feel like I look back on my childhood and I see these different things that I go, oh, that's what that was, you know, like and it's um, it's really cool. We've had some really good conversations out of that. Did you play other sports growing up? I did. I was uh, I played year-round travel softball and, and thought that I wanted to play softball in college. Uh, figured out that defensively I probably couldn't could have got there. Played catcher in third base, but um, with the bat, just didn't have it. Didn't have the offensive production to be able to to play at the next level. So had always played golf, like I said, growing up, um, but didn't really get serious about golf until maybe my sophomore year of high school. Did playing those other sports help you? And do you, I mean, we'll probably get into that a little bit. I always love when a person plays another sport that, you know, playing that uh, softball, did that help you uh, maybe learn the team concept uh, as you went further in golf? Absolutely. And I think that like my personality, I'm, I'm fairly, fairly extroverted. Although as the older I get, I discover that I'm probably more introverted than I ever gave myself credit for. But um, the team dynamic, especially with softball, right? They're loud, they're cheering, they're hyping each other up. And uh, I think that that actually translates very well to golf. I think that so many people try to play golf in a really stoic nature, but that doesn't really suit their personality. So at least at USF, like we, we want you to play in a way that's consistent with your personality. And it's okay, especially as a, as a woman, to get fired up when you make a birdie or, you know, you pipe it down the middle. We, we want to see that excitement. Okay. Well then the extrovert part explains a lot that I've kind of started and you'll hear this, <laughs> uh, this dancing that I've been watching on Instagram. And I don't know why uh, I just, I, I can't dance. Uh, first of all, worth the darn uh, the rhythm is, I don't know how I played golf cause I don't have any rhythm doing that, but you, you stood up in front of the athletic department. You've stood up on a jumbotron. You've got the great moves. I know you didn't learn, and we'll get find out in your coaching. You didn't learn that in Knoxville because it would be more clogging. Is that kind of the personality, just have fun and you're passing it on to your team because they look like they have a blast watching you do it? Oh, we, we do have a blast as a team. I think that – so so here's the thing. I feel super called and equipped to let people know that they're boldly brilliant. 
And as we grow up, we, we just keep dulling our edges and dulling our edges to try to fit in. And that's just something that like that kind of story just missed me somehow. And so I like showing people that you can be vulnerable. I'm not the best dancer, but I have fun when I do it. And I hope that that translates, you know, to the people that may be watching it. But if you can just kind of be yourself and and arrive at a place of self-confidence, like, man, the world unlocks in some really magical ways. And so I want, I want people to see that you don't have to do it like everybody else and, and you don't have to look or be or, or act like anybody else. Like, the gifts that you bring to the world are really what will will heal the world. Like the more people that can just be out there playing it boldly brilliant, that's that's kind of the way forward. Don't you think you have to be yourself when you're a golfer? You have to kind of play to that personality and play true to yourself, especially under pressure? Absolutely. But I think that those lessons are missed so often growing up, you know, with swing coaches and parents and things like that. You know, they watch they watch some of the more stoic players and think that, you know, how many times have we heard this? Like no one should be able to tell if you just made a birdie or a bogey, right? Like Mm -hmm. you just got to bottle it all in. And that's to me, that's a recipe for disaster. If you're like that in life, that's how you should play golf. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. If you swing that pendulum, you know, further out to the extremes, like it's okay to be that person on the golf course. So, you said you started playing sophomore year golf, got serious about it, gave up the softball. Uh, you know, we end up going to Western Carolina uh, to play college golf. That's a pretty good distance away. I mean, what was that uh, transition like and what was uh, being at Western Carolina like? I'm an only child, so I'm super close with my parents. And so, yes, that was a, tra- a transition for sure. But I grew up going to church camp in the mountains in North Carolina and so had always loved that area of the country. And so getting to go there, um, it was awesome. And, and the team at Western was super dynamic, really diverse, a lot of different backgrounds. And it just did kind of become a nuclear family. I give a lot of credit to my college coach, Steve Lott. He was an amazing man and led by example, led with love um, and wanted what was best for each of us. And, and similarly, he didn't try to make us all the same. He, uh, he was the first one that kind of, you know, continued to show me that, you know, you can kind of come as you are and, and that will be celebrated. So credit to Steve Lott, but my time at Western was great. When did you decide to, uh, to try to play professionally? When did you decide that, hey, I want to get into coaching and what got you to kind of have that interest in coaching? Well, believe it or not, I was not the model student athlete. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, I, w- I was not afraid to, um, unfortunately, you know, get, make sure that Steve was was earning every dime of his salary. So um, I think that the way that he, um, you know, dealt with issues and things like that with so much compassion and empathy is actually what kind of spurred this love for coaching. So when I graduated uh, from Western, I started my master's program down at Weber in South Lake Wales and was a graduate assistant for the, for the women's team. And so it kind of whet my appetite. Um, I said, Oh man, there's something to this. Uh, But I had the opportunity to become an instructor trainee at the David Ledbetter golf Academy up at champions gate. And so I wanted to get that background in swing mechanics. I was always more of a field player. And I Mm -hmm. think that that probably comes from the softball background um, just athletic, right? So just, you know, can move the ball, but didn't really ever know if my club face was shut or open at the top or 
So I wanted to get those skills. And so I worked at the Ledbetter Academy for a couple of years, um, became a certified instructor. At the time, was actually the only female certified instructor in North America, which was kind of cool. That is cool. Um, but then uh, saw a coaching opportunity open up at St. Leo Division Two over in Dade City. So um, pretty quickly, you know, knew that I wanted to move back into coaching. Okay, so you did the instruction, and I hear coaches and, and kids and parents, you know, you can't play baseball, can't play softball because it mess up your golf swing. All right. Take us through your thoughts on that. Golf swing, you can still do both growing up. Uh, eventually, you probably have to be specific as you get to high school. But, you know, what did you learn at Ledbetter to kind of say, hey, you can do both these things and and then helped you along as you pass this on to your, uh, your players? Absolutely. Athleticism, right? Movement is movement. Knowing where your body is in space is a skill. And it doesn't matter what plane you're swinging on, whether that's baseball or golf. You know, there are some inherent differences of course um but but i think that early specialization is really a red flag and it's interesting it actually informs our recruiting um even today kids that that specialize and go all in on one sport when they're eight and nine years old not only is it a recipe for burnout but so many of those kids you know the the goal is to get that d1 scholarship and so they get a d1 scholarship they show up and they've already kind of achieved that goal that they've had or that their parents have had for them since they were nine or 10 years old. So we love athletes, right? Mm -hmm. Like we can, we can teach you short game. We can help you develop speed on, on putting and things like that. But uh, athletes that, that want to move the ball a long way. uh, We love that. Me mentioned St. Leo first job. What was that experience like? Cause you had some pretty good success there. We had, we had solid success there and, and credit to the team. Um, they bought into a new way of doing it. At the time, I was the first full-time women's golf coach there. So the previous coach, it was a part-time position. So Fran Reedy, who continues to be a professional mentor to me this day, uh, took a chance on, on a girl with, with next to no coaching experience. I was 24 years old and had a senior that was 22. Wow. So I learned in that first year that if you seek friendship instead of respect, uh, you're going to screw it all up. And and that's basically what I did my first year. Um, and so I think that because I'm jovial, because I'm upbeat and happy, um, I had not learned yet that I could still place boundaries on that. And so I think that that got misinterpreted of, you know, coaches are friend and 24 and, and honestly not knowing any better. Um, that was a big mistake that I made my fresh or my first year there. Um, as I kind of tightened up the reins and understood that I could get respect now and earn friendship as student athletes graduated and became alumni, things started to look up. So we went from being outside the top 25 to being ranked eighth or ninth in the country, going to regionals each year. We got an individual to nationals. And St. Leo is a place that, like I, I kind of still say, you know, you can take the girl out of D2, but you can't take the D2 out of the girl. And there are so many good things about Division Two, and developing the whole person and giving student athletes a chance to explore the nuances within their personalities and the things that interest them. So Coach Stevens and I both here at USF, we, you know, he came from, from a JUCO background. 
we both still coach with that mentality that you got to love the person first and the golf scores will come. It's a lot like parenting. I mean, you go through all those phases of parenting <laughs> and then eventually, you know, you're a mentor and then you become a friend. Uh, like I'm in that sure. stage with my kids. And I think that's the tricky part. As you mentioned, 24, 22, I know that happened with my wife, Sissy, when she went to LSU, Karen Bonson was, you know, a new coach, one couple years you know, actually might have even been on the team with some of the players, and that would be a tough transition. You eventually figure it out, but that, that, that is. But don't you go to Knoxville for a year as an assistant? Is that where you leave to go up there? I did. Okay. Yeah, I, I ended up in Knoxville for a year, um, assistant coach in the SEC, which was big, light, big lights, you know, bold city, a different, a whole entirely different level, right, of, of college golf. And so it was cool to see what it was like to work with student athletes that – had aspirations to play on tour and you know really this was the next step for them instead of kind of like okay I've made it to college golf so um did a year at the University of Tennessee was actually out of coaching for a year which was uh at the time tough but looking back it's kind of what set up what I would call like the second half of of my coaching career would you learn in that year off before you took the Southern Miss job so in the year off, um, I went to, uh, my parents have property uh, just outside of Statesboro, Georgia. And so uh, my husband, Brian, um, our daughter, Blakely, who was two at the time, and myself, we went there and um, actually got a part-time job working in sports information okay. for Georgia Southern mm -hmm. Athletics. Um, what that taught me was gratitude and respect for support staff i think as coaches sometimes we can get so pigeonholed into our thoughts that you know in in some ways right the world revolves around the teams but without support staff without sports information the business office compliance things like that none of us exist mm -hmm. none of us have jobs and so seeing it from the other side and actually getting to be in a supportive role was really awesome and really I think reignited the passion and the fire to to be a head coach again and to continue doing it with love and mutual respect. You head down to uh, Hattiesburg become the uh, head coach at Southern Miss had great success down there uh, but there was always a dream job uh, at South Florida <laughs> and of course uh, they come to Colin and it, it had to be tough to leave a program that you kind of built back up and got them going in the right direction and then but your dream job comes up what was that transition like that had to be hard to leave those gals uh, that you'd yeah. spent some time with impossibly hard to leave those those girls the my time in Hattiesburg um, was really special it was only two and a half seasons but the girls there, uh, and the, again, the way they kind of bought into this team first mentality and the culture of loving one another produced some really great results on the golf course and improving that program from being in the 150s, you know, up into the, to the 60s and 70s and golf stat rankings was really, really fulfilling. You know, what's funny is when I accepted that job, Bill McGillis was the athletic director, incredible man, incredible leader, incredible friend. The USF job opened a week after I took the Southern Miss job. 
Oh, really? Wow. Uh-huh. And he called me into his office and he goes, are you going to apply? And I jokingly said to him, because he has ties to USF, he'd worked there previously. And I was like, you already know if I've, if I've applied. And he laughed, you know, we had a laugh over it, but he's like, I know that's your dream. And I was like, I wouldn't do that to you. Um, and I didn't, but I remember I went home that night and cried because I was like, man, if I would have held out another week, could I have had the opportunity to come to the University of South Florida? But God had me on the correct mm. path, and I'm a, I'm a full believer in that, um, that I was right where I needed to be. So um, enjoyed my time in Hattiesburg immensely, but um, figured out at about 3.30 in the morning that the job uh, had posted for South Florida and that they were not going to wait until the end of the year. This was back in 2017, and... I actually called Bill McGillis. He was now the athletic director out at San Diego. I called him. So it was, you know, whatever, 1.30 in the morning, whatever it was. And I said, Bill, South Florida just opened again. And he's like, got to go. And he hung up on me. And I was thinking like, oh, it's 1.30 in the morning. Like, of course he would hang up on me. Like, I'm an <laughs> idiot. I just called him. And unbeknownst to me, he immediately picked up the phone and started calling people at South Florida and said, I've got your next coach. So, um, Bill McGillis, uh, you know, he, he actually has, uh, has been instrumental in my last two stops hiring me at Southern Miss and then, and then helping by making some phone calls at South Florida. Yeah, that had to be tough. I mean, and you mentioned, and I think it's always a, a tough balance for a coach and even the kids that golf is such an individual sport. You have to be a little bit selfish to be great. But then you throw them into college golf, and it's a team. I think that's why you like athletes that play team sports. But how do you keep the players, like you were mentioning, they love each other, they're friends with each other, but all of a sudden now they're playing for that last spot in qualifying. I mean, they want to make it. They want to beat their even roommate. How do you balance that? Because that's a tough thing for a coach uh, to keep them, you know, from, you know, not so much fighting, but just that competitiveness that everybody has. Sure. I think the, the key to that is you've got to help them understand or you've got to recruit girls that already understand that beating someone else when they're not playing their best, there's really no honor in that. And so what's really great is to be super competitive between the ropes and want to earn that spot and that that's not diminishing. Like it's not a zero sum game, right? My success is not coming at the cost of yours and vice versa. There's space for everybody to play well. And what we say is be as competitive as you want to be between the ropes, but understand you actually want to shoot lower scores than your teammates when they're playing well, because that means you're playing even better. And so our qualifiers are intense but they're still super supportive. Like it, and it's, it's amazing that we have young people that we have on this team that just deeply get that. I mean, in the middle of qualifiers, you know, they're all going for each other's throats mm -hmm. while still cheering them on. Great shot. Oh, that was an awesome putt, like nice birdie. Um, and so I think that they just inherently understand that only five people will get to travel and that's tough. And that's hard, but at least here, the girls that do not travel and we have, you know, like it's not, it's not necessarily the same lineup each tournament, but the ones that don't travel understand their role and that they are going to play as good as they can to make, you know, somebody else earn it, or they're going to earn it that time. Um, and it just works. You mentioned you took the program over in December of 2000 in the middle of the season. 
but in the next year, y'all become the second most improved program. What was it like to start a, you know, jump into a program halfway through the year? It happens. Uh, we've, we've seen it happen. Charlie Ewing's done it at Mississippi State. I mean, it happens. That had to be a difficult uh, for both you and the players that were currently on the team. Sure. And I give that first Springs team a lot of credit. They had they had battled through some adversity. You know, typically you don't make a mid-year coaching change if things are are all going perfectly well. Um, and so they had battled through some adversity. And so that spring to me was more about loving them well, supporting them well, and not stressing the results. And that's tough, right? When you sign a contract as a college coach, you're there because they're ready for you to perform and get the results. But we, we played the long game. And fortunately we had a athletic director that understood that, that this was not going to be the spring that we were going to go, you know, shoot a bunch of school records, but this was going to be the spring that when those student athletes looked back on their experience at South Florida, they were going to remember that spring. Yeah, because the next year you jumped up 75 spots in the rankings. That's quite a jump. Uh, I don't care where you are. I mean, even if you're at the bottom, that's a big jump because that's hard to do, as you said. But I've read what you call, I guess it's the moniker, whatever you want to call it, the uprising. Uh, the uprising. What does that yeah. mean? What does that mean? You know, it, it means launching a revolt against the status quo. And um, that's the only way that you can kind of upset the apple cart enough to get big results quickly. And so Coach Stevens and I both have always embraced transfers. And even after the transfer portal, we have transfers every year here. Um, we know that there are some programs that that's not how they choose to do it. But for South Florida, that's a model that works. It allows us to infuse that year's roster with some people that have already been there, done that, um, have already been battle tested, have already fought through adversity. Um, and, and those young ladies when they arrive here and whether that's a second chance or whether that's just, it's a better fit. Um, again, they get to be who they are here and that opens so many paths for them to unlock their best golf. And, and what's great is to me, really good coaches, if they're doing it well, they get to step back and, and facilitate right? Because like, it's your team. We want you to have ownership of this. This isn't, you know, coach and I pulling the sled. This is everybody getting on the sled and we're pushing it together. And so that, uh, that year where we were able to, to climb so many spots, we had a great infusion of some transfers. We had a really strong freshman that came in that year and we just reestablished team culture and, and putting people first. Yeah. Cause the transfer portal, you're looking every day. <laughs> There's kids in there we every do. day. That's Absolutely. that's got to be so tricky. Um, and, and I think for some kids, there's a definite reason why they do. Uh, and then some just, you know, I, I don't know, maybe it's a society. Maybe I'm old and old school. But, you know, sometimes you got to tough it up. But sometimes there is a good reason to get into the transfer portal. Uh, and for you coaches, that's an everyday thing to see who might fit in and, and do that. But not only were you good on the golf course, your academics were fantastic as well. I mean, how do you balance or how do kids balance uh, academics and, and, and excel on the golf course and off? I think that's an intrinsic trait. I don't know if that can actually be taught or coached. You have to want to pursue excellence in every avenue of your life. And so for us as coaches, I think that that comes down to recruiting 
we want players that want to be comprehensively excellent. And so that means excelling in the classroom, excelling on the golf course and uh, excelling in how they represent the university and, and how they want to give back to their local community and things like that. Um, and this team, there's no shortcuts to that, right? There is no, you cannot shortcut your way to a great GPA. And we, Coach Stevens and I both, we see it daily. We see them studying in the team room. We see them having to sacrifice because that's what it takes um, to say, you know what? Nope, I can't go to dinner tonight with everybody because I need to work on my paper and get ahead. And so they balance and they have really good time management. And and so um, Tatiana Hitchcock, who's our academic coordinator, she's amazing. She works with them and, and, and helps kind of steward that. But I think that that comes from more of an intrinsic drive. And, and fortunately for us, we've got a team full of girls that want to be comprehensively excellent. What does USF uh, offer not only just, I guess, as a academics, but also uh, for the golf program? What does it have? What separates it? What, uh, how, when you're out recruiting kids, how do you sell, hey, you need to come to USF and, 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 and what, trying to convince them, hey, this is the place for me? It's paradise. It's it's one of the fastest growing cities in America. It's consistently voted one of the top 10 cities in America. We have the great luxury, and this helps with parents as we talk about the program, that we are you know 15 minutes away from downtown. And that's beautiful because that means that during the week, you can lock in and focus and do the things that you need to do um, and get your job done. But on the weekends, it's close enough that you do have a place to escape, whether that's to the beach, whether that's to the downtown Tampa Riverwalk, really great eateries downtown with with amazing rooftop terraces and things like that. So it's the best of all the worlds and the weather. We, um, we, we are always selling the weather and the ability to hit on grass all year long, um, you know, bright sunshiny days, bluebird skies, and six golf courses within a 15 minute drive. That's pretty good. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's part of the reason I went to school in Knoxville is the ability to play multiple golf courses and not be just stuck on one. I think it's so important to be able to have that option for sure. But when you're out recruiting, uh, what are you looking for in a player, and what uh, how do the players kind of get in touch with you, or you know, not so much impressed, but just uh, show off their skills to you as a coach? So we're really big on starting with the numbers and, and because we coach an objective game, that's really easy, right? We look at scoring averages, we look at wagger, we're looking at all of those things to kind of narrow our list. Then when we're out on site and we're evaluating players, um, less concerned, honestly, with the swing being the most technically sound. Again, I might get fried at the stake for saying that as a college no, coach, but no. there's there's so many ways to get back to the golf ball, right? Like it, it, it works for Jim Furyk. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're looking at what's happening between the shots. How do you carry yourself? What's your poise? Are, you know, do you have a bad attitude? Does it look like you love the game of golf? Because when you get to college, and we're at it six days a week. If you don't love the game, it's not its not going to be a good fit. And so girls that we feel like are just loving the game, even if they're not playing their best, um, are, they, are they taking notes? Are they writing down their stats between shots? Things that show us that they have an investment in getting better are the things that we like. Also Pet heard how you, how you treat your parents. <laughs> I was just going to say – Pet peeve is when we see players whose moms or dads immediately grab their golf bags and carry all of their equipment for them 
or, you know, when they're unpacking in the parking lot and mom and dad's, you know, setting everything up and the kids sitting there, you know, on their phone. Um, it's amazing. And I think parents don't get that right. College coaches, we're looking at everything because we're going to live like a nuclear family for four years together. And so we want, we, we like gritty blue collar, you know, not afraid to, to get in there and, and have a really strong work ethic kind of girls. Funny thing I've got to ask. I've never asked this question. It just came to my little brain. <laughs> All right. So there's two things that happened that I've watched because, you know, Mary Lyndon, my oldest, played at State, Mississippi State, oh, yeah. and, and Kathleen at uh, LSU. And of course, my wife played and all that. But all right, you walk off the green. And you wave back to your teammate. You may have made a three-putt bogey, but you still wave back to your teammate. Uh, I know when I was in college, I wasn't waving back to my teammates. But, I mean, that's part of the rituals. And then they carry their bag off the green for their other for their teammate. Uh, is that something yes. that, that's just uh, – when did that start taking place? I don't really know when it started taking place. I know for us, like, we throw the bull sign okay. um, back to our teammates. And even if you've made a bogey, it's it's less about – what you just did on the hole and it's more about sharing energy with a teammate and so you're throwing a bull because you want them to know back in the fairway like i see you i know you're out there i know you have my back i'm going to acknowledge that and then you know inevitably the girl in the fairway will return the gesture um, to make sure that that you're saying yeah and i i also have your back so it's less about it's less about the results on the whole and more about um little ways that you know we can't be in a softball dugout singing cheers and chants to one another so it's a silent way to keep each other connected and to stay kind of hyped up i figured that's what it was and it is kind of a cool way of keeping you as a team and and it might even calm you down but when you look back what's the best advice you've ever been given whether it was you as a player or as a coach or a person what's the best advice you've ever been given the best advice I have ever been given uh, is from my dad, and, and it goes back full circle here to the firehouse. Um, he, he has always said to me, e, you can accomplish anything that you want in your life, and the only thing standing between you and what you want is your work ethic to achieve it. And so, um, like my, my grandparents, I was the first person in my family to go to college, um, my grandparents were sharecroppers in South Alabama, um, illiterate, you know, just two generations before. And so what my grandparents passed down and what my, my parents have passed down to me is that work ethic is the only thing that separates, you know, the achievers from the non-achievers. And, and I carry that with me every day. I don't have to ask your proudest moment because that pretty much explained it and answered the question without me asking that question. That was a great answer. Uh, by the way, uh, goals and expectations for the team. And how do you kind of keep those from taking over, uh, when things aren't maybe going the expectations on themselves, uh, kind of overwhelm. How do you kind of, what are the goals and expectations maybe for this season coming up? Sure. Um, I hate the word goals because goals, goals tend to invite in outside variables that we actually don't have any control of. So when a player says, okay, my goal is to average 74 better for the year. You have absolutely no idea what kind of playing conditions are going to come up in your 11 or 12 tournaments throughout the year. You have no idea on course conditions. You have no idea on yardage played. So we are huge on commitments because commitments are things that you can control. And so even in our after round meetings and our pre round meetings, we're always going back to the controllables. What was your attitude? What was your effort? What was your focus? Um, 
what was your nutrition? How was your hydration? Those are the things that we can control. And we know if we take care of those five things, that good results come from that. Um, great golf comes from as a byproduct of being great humans. And so we don't get that twisted. As far as expectations and, and things like that, uh, I think last year when we when we unlocked the postseason and, and saw how good that felt to, to get called into the NCAA postseason tournament, um, that is something that leaves us hungry. And the fact that we were inside the number to go to nationals with nine holes to play and even while the girls, you know, didn't realize it at the time afterwards, we were able to kind of say that it left such a hunger in us and it could have made us bitter. We could have said, man, we got there, we got that close, you know, what the heck are we even doing? What are we even fighting for? And what came out of that post round team meeting last year while we were still on site down in Palm beach is what lets coach Stevens and I know that this year can be a special year and it's just going to be controlling the things that we can control, being great humans and letting the golf speak for itself. That's well said. I've had several you know kids call me and, you know, they're asking me, Hey, golf. I said, you can't let golf define you. Uh, you can't let those expectations strangle you, which they do. I like the fact you, about the goals. I like that answer to that. And I think that's the toughest thing for a lot of these kids is, you know, whether they had great junior careers and they come in or maybe they have a great freshman year and they don't have such a great start and they, the expectations strangle them. I remember Hal Sutton telling me on the podcast years ago, it was just like, I said, you know, you were compared to be the next Jack Nicholas. He goes, how do I live up to that? I can't. Sure. You know, I think, sure. I think even at his level, this is Hal Sutton. Right. Uh, and if he, if it strangles him, what's it going to do to a 19 or 20 year old boy or girl or a young man or young woman? I think that's, uh, something they have to keep perspective. I think they all struggle with that. And I think someone like you, uh, helping them along the way, I think that's a, a great way of doing it, but, uh, it's pretty cool to have you on here. And, and I always kind of, you know, I always like to finish it up with, you know, whether life or golf, you may have only one shot. You got to make it count. You sure are making it count in a lot of people's lives. And I think that's a, a compliment to you, and, and I've enjoyed uh, spending this time. i got some great stuff. I love the fact that your dad was a firefighter. Passed those things on. That team uh, unity is really cool to, to, to catch back up with you, and uh, we look forward to watching you and having a great season and wishing you the best of luck. Thank you so much, Jim. This has been an honor to be on today. Well, how cool is that? Uh, Erica Brennan, one of the good people in, in college golf, and if you're a young girl out there you would uh, definitely need to take a look at her program she gets it she understands it she's played uh, and she's just one of those people that if you're a a dad or a mom you you would love to have your child uh, play for her so I appreciate her spending some time telling us her her story Uh, growing up uh, her dad was a firefighter I can't imagine growing up like that but uh, love sports and and you could see some of the things she learned from those men uh, and women along her way uh, that have passed on to her players but uh, appreciate y'all listening Uh, don't forget to subscribe don't forget to get your copy of only one shot that's available on amazon and we appreciate steve azar for always allowing us uh, to use his music he's one of my dear friends Uh, until next time good luck to everybody out there and uh, we'll be talking to you